Our reading comes from Micah chapter 1, and we'll be reading from verse 2 to the end of the chapter. Micah chapter 1, reading from verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Bethlehem. Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way inhabitants of Shafir in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanan come out, do not come out. And the lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish, for it was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel, Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marasha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to him for it. This morning, let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for uh, the whole of Scripture. And Lord, as we come to this portion of it this morning, we ask that you would bless us. Lord, we've perhaps not read Micah as much as we have other books of Scripture, and yet, Lord, we recognize it is all part of your Word. And so we ask, Lord, that you would bless us in our considering of it this morning and encourage us. Give us what we need, Lord, that we might live faithfully with you this coming week. And we ask it all, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of walking along with somebody else and being caught up in conversation with them, and as you talk with them, you're not looking at them, you're looking where you're going, and you're talking, and you're talking, and you're talking, and then eventually you realize that the conversation is very much one way, and then you turn and look, and you realize they're not there anymore. 
And you've got no idea how long ago in the monologue, it turns out, that you've been engaging in, they actually disappeared. Something's caught their eye. They've gone and uh, wandered off into another shop, or they've simply fallen behind, uh, and you weren't aware. And they knew. You were just wandering on, and they just left you to go and talk to yourself like some kind of raving lunatic. And yet, um, they just didn't bother stopping you at all. That, that moment is a horrible feeling, isn't it? I mean, it's embarrassing to realize that everyone around you has watched you just walk along talking loudly to yourself, but it's a peculiar feeling. You, you feel sort of unsettled because what you thought was reality, it turns out, actually isn't. And you're not really sure what you're supposed to do. You can have sort of stand and loiter around or perhaps get narky with the person who's wandered off and just left you to it. The one that you knew that you trusted wasn't there in that moment where you were so sure they were, and it leaves you feeling really uneasy and unsettled. And that's precisely what's happened to God's people uh, at this point in their history that we're reading of in Micah chapter 1. It is almost certainly the case that this has been true of all of our lives as individuals. It is definitely the case that it has been the experience of this whole congregation at various points in its history. And it's true of the church uh, across our nation. That there have been times when we've been walking along and we have been convinced that we are in this ongoing sort of two-way relationship with God and yet something has happened. There has been a moment in our lives and we've turned around and we've found ourselves standing there feeling all alone. Feeling that horrible uncertainty and unsettling feeling that the one that I thought was there, I I can't feel, I don't know, I feel adrift and alone and uncertain and fearful. And I don't really know what to do in that moment. You perhaps have recognized that in the lives of other people. And very often what we see when this happens is people have one of two options. They either come back to God, having sort of wandered away from Him, all the while thinking they were in an ongoing intimate relationship with Him. Or the people who do find themselves in this experience decide that He was never there at all. Maybe all my life has been like this. And they wander off and keep going, uh, living their lives are seeking to live their lives without Him. It's a sad thing to see, and I'm sure you've all seen it in the lives of other people. And I'm sure, like me, you have felt it personally at times. Everything seemed to be fine, and a crisis comes, and you realize you don't really know what you believe about this. You know what you ought to believe, and yet in the moment when you need it the most, when you reach for your faith that was so sure, you find it's not there, it's evaporated, and you don't really know what to do and where to go. Micah addresses the whole world in this chapter at the very beginning of his book. He says, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Now, he's not going to go on speaking about the world, but he wants the world to hear what he has to say right here. What he's doing is he's sort of convening a court, as it were. That's the kind of language he's using where he's gathering the people of Israel, the kingdom in the north, and the people of Judah, the kingdom in the south, he's gathering them into God's court, and he's going to start leveling charges against them, accusing them of things, and he's going to evaluate their faith. And he wants, uh, as these two people are in the court, he wants the world to be in the gallery, as it were, looking down at the proceedings so that they see and understand what's happening. So that they will be able to live their lives not falling into the same mistake that Israel and Judah have fallen into. 
as he does this, he outlines the fact that life for Israel in the north and Judah in the south has gone on pretty much the way it always has done. Everything looks sort of normal to them. But invading nations are just over the horizon and they're coming to attack them. And when that happens and everything in their lives is upended, they're going to look for their faith, they're going to look to their God and realize he's not where they thought he was. They've wandered away from him and they need help, but he is over there and out of reach and they're on their own and now everything has fallen apart. I watched uh, over the, the last wee while, occasionally it comes up on YouTube and Facebook, these videos of um, guys who have um, great big beards and they've got young babies at home and the baby is used to their dad with a big beard uh, and they've shaved it all off and they've not let anybody know and they've hidden themselves and they talk to their babies. And you can see the baby sitting there excited that dad's there. They can't see him, but they can hear his voice. And then dad sticks his head out from behind the cupboard door or lets the cloth that he's been holding up drop and reveal his new look to this baby. And you can see in every one of these videos, the baby kind of going from familiar, I know where I am and I know what's going on, to confusion, to fear, and inevitably they just burst into tears, despite the fact their dad's talking to them the whole time, that's not my dad, because I know what he looks like, and you look nothing like him, and you can see the conflict in them, that I can hear the sound of your voice, but it doesn't match with the image in front of me, and they just disintegrate, they completely lose it, and it almost doesn't matter how much their dad tries to comfort them from that point, they're just completely devastated. Now, it's slightly cruel that they film this and then put it up on the internet for your enjoyment, and the whole point is to sort of laugh at the situation, but for the poor baby in this situation, they're just utterly baffled. They don't know what's going on, and that crisis that confusion comes to so many of us. So what do we do when we hear the voice of our Father that we know so well, but when we look to Him in a time of crisis and we don't see the one that we think ought to be there, what do we do? Micah helps us understand this this morning. He helps us to draw comfort from our relationship with God, but to invest in that relationship so that we are familiar with him. He says, when we live like the Lord is with us as his people, then we need not fear the destruction that sin brings to the world around us. We need not fear that moment where a hardship and difficulty comes, as it surely will into all of our lives. We find in verses 2 through to 7, this outlining of of what God is doing in this circumstance, what God is doing to his people. They have got to this point where they've been living as if God isn't really there at all. They've been calling themselves God people, but they haven't been living like they're God's people. And so Micah says, the Lord is a witness against you in his holy temple. So God exists in this heavenly temple looking down upon his people, and his people haven't been living with him, and so he is now coming down from that place to the world, and he's going to tread upon the high places of the world, and the world is just going to disintegrate under him, such as his devastating power and authority. This is kind of common language for um, ancient kings at the time, that they tread on the mountaintops. The idea is that they sort of 
you know, bestride the world like a colossus kind of thing, such as their power and their influence. Everything is under them. Nothing is greater than they are. The mountains will melt, the valleys will split and flow like wax and so on. Um, and the idea is that everything stable in your lives, the Lord is bringing to an end. And he's doing it specifically to make you aware that you've been living your lives in this illusion. You've been thinking that everything is sure and steadfast under your feet because God is with you, but you haven't been living as if God is with you, and so he hasn't been. He's withdrawn for a moment, for a time, and all of a sudden you realize everything under your feet is actually not as firm as it once was. All of this is for the transgression of Jacob and the sins of the house of Israel, he says. And the point is that they have been living sinful lives. There is no neutral life. This is something our society has deluded us into believing, that you can live sort of neutral in life, where you're neither good nor bad, you're just plodding along in the middle somewhere. It's a comfortable-sounding place to be. It's where everyone wants to be, because no one wants to say that they're just this precious, holy saint who never does anything wrong, because we know that's not true. Neither do we want to say that we're a wicked, deplorable sinner. We want to say we're somewhere in the middle. And our society says that that's where we all kind of are. Or at least you are if you're in my gang. If you're not, then you're probably one of those awful people. And that's exactly what Israel thinks it's been doing, plodding along in the middle. But God says there is no middle ground. You're either for me or you're against me. And if you're for me, you're growing in your relationship with me. And if you're against me, you are living in a sinful way. And that's exactly what's happened to Israel. And so God is saying to his people, particularly at this point, Samaria, the kingdom in the north with its capital um, its capital city, uh, Samaria, that they have built this sort of empire, this incredibly grand place. The capital city has been built on a hill. It's about 100 meters higher than the surrounding countryside, so it commands spectacular views. And the kings of Samaria expended unbelievable wealth in building some of the most exquisitely designed palaces that have ever existed in that part of the world. We've dug up bits of them, and we found them to be incredibly well-made, well-crafted, well-engineered. They brought in engineers and architects from all over the place and opened their country up to all of the kingdoms around them, including all of the pagan gods and religious practices they had, and welcomed it all in. And the result was great wealth, prosperity, Um, Huge amounts of money flowing into the treasury and great influence amongst the nations around them. And yet God is saying, for all that you've accrued, all these things that you think show that God is with you, I'm going to make it a rubbish tip in the countryside. It's a grand palace, but it's going to be just a heap of rubble, the kind of place where you clear away the worst of the stones and plant vines. There's nothing else that you can do with the ground there. All of your stones I'm going to pour down the mountainside from your great capital into the valley. Everything is going to be smashed to pieces. Your foundations are going to be dug up and turfed out along with all the rest. There will be nothing left. And all of this will ultimately then be burned away along with all your idols. And he says, interestingly, in verse 7, from the fee of a prostitute you gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. And what he means is you've chased after other gods in order to acquire all of this wealth. And because you've done that, I'm going to have a pagan nation, Assyria, come and destroy you, and they will cart off all of that wealth and take it back to Assyria, and they will use it to worship their gods. And so everything that you have done, all the deplorable things that you've done to gather all of this wealth, it will just be reduced down to nothing. 
it won't even be used to glorify me. It will be completely rendered away altogether. And in these verses, we find God outlining the fact that Israel is God's chosen nation, that God has used Israel so much to, to, to bring His justice and His mercy, His love and His wrath to the world around them. He used them, if you remember, to destroy the Canaanites who were truly appalling people in what they did to um, worship their gods and the sacrifice of babies and, uh, and children and so on. God wiped out the Canaanites with Israel. He used Israel to be a light to the world around them, to show them the way of the knowledge and the love of God, and wanted them to do this to the whole world and not just the region around them. And yet, they've used this privilege simply for their own gain. They've grown wealthy and comfortable, and they've fallen into sin that has led them to chase the privileges of loving God without any of the responsibility that goes with it, without any of the work that goes into worshiping God. It has not been about him, it's been about the stuff he's given them. And so God has said, that's fine. If you don't want me, then I take away all the stuff too. If you don't want me, you don't get anything that goes with me. And so he retreats from them. God is now going to take them to task and show not just Israel, but all the world This isn't how life works. You can't say you love me but live like the rest of the world does and get all the benefits from loving me because I'm not an idiot. I'm not a fool, the fool that you're taking me for. And in a bizarre way, Israel is fulfilling God's desire that they be a light to the nations. They are being a light to the nations, but entirely the wrong way. God is showing all the world around them just what it means to live with a lack of faithfulness to God. And it is a fearful, fearful thing. They will be left with absolutely nothing. Not even two stones left one on another. It's going to be completely stripped away. So God gets up, he leaves his court, he comes down to earth, and he calls Israel to account. And God's justice reduces all of their power and wealth to rubbish. It's nothing. And the reason it's nothing is because he's not in the midst of it all. And we can think perhaps of our own lives where we've lived with so many blessings. We've known God and we've loved God and we've been serving him. And there have been times when we've just got into the daily routine of life, the rut of everyday living, and we've just wandered off. And and we haven't been worshipping God as we ought to. And over time we worship him less and less. And we pour less and less of ourselves into serving him and loving one another. And reading his word and coming to him in prayer. And we realize six months, a year down the line, that we're not doing any of those things anymore. And we suddenly realize that our faith is perhaps not quite as sure and as certain as it once was. And it leads to that feeling of fear and uncertainty. What was familiar isn't there where we thought it once was. And we don't know what to do. And a crisis comes. This has happened to churches all through the, the, the millennia that the church, the two millennia the church has existed. And um, we find Jesus speaking to the church early on in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Saying just that thing, that if you neglect your life with me, your lampstand is going to be taken away. The light of the life of the church will, will be gone. And the sad thing is, the church might not even know. It might just carry on doing its thing like it always has because it's about tradition and about familiarity and and so on. 
And we can see that churches over the years have declined and buildings have been turned into soft plays and climbing centers and restaurants and carpet warehouses and so on. And we can look at it all and see the decline of congregations of God's people because they have slipped into the same problem that Israel and Judah did. Now, the world around us can't see that living in the sinful pursuit of wealth or power or comfort or fulfillment only leads to death and destruction, but we can because we have Micah chapter 1 revealing it to us here. And when we live like the Lord is with us right now and serve Him and love Him, for all that that takes a lot of effort. It requires us to expend a lot of mental and physical energy to do this. When we do it, we don't need to fear seeing this end come. Because it never will come to us. Even though we might go through difficult times, and like the believers in China or in North Korea, we might have all of the stuff of our lives taken away from us by the government or by by other religious groups in the nation or whatever it might be. But we don't need to fear we will come to the same end that Israel and Judah do, where they walk along and then realize God isn't there anymore. I don't know who I am. I don't know where I'm going. There's nothing certain in my life. We never need to fear that ever. Because we will be using what we have, however little or much it might be, for the glory of God and for His purposes in our lives. And when we do that, God promises that He will always be with us. He will always lead us. He will always guide us. He will always assure us and reassure us and reassure us of His presence And he will go on doing so, not just in this life, but for all eternity. We don't need to fear this fate when we live like the Lord is with us. And so we're called by God with the strength that he's given us to pour our lives into this kind of way. Where we love him, where we serve him, we worship him, we're selfless and generous with one another and the people around us and we proclaim the gospel to the lost. We find that when we live like the Lord is with us, we need not fear the spread of sin in verses 8 and 9. Because that is what follows on from sin entering into a certain place. It's not a static thing. It's difficult for us to think about sin for what it really is, isn't it? We think about it as a sort of a lump of stuff that exists in the world, but it isn't. We're reminded in in the Westminster Confession and in the larger and the shorter catechisms for the Westminster Confession that sin is any lack of conformity to God's will, to God's desire, to God's law. That any time we don't conform ourselves to what God says in His Word, we are living in sin. We're going in a different direction. We're living our lives for another purpose. And the problem is that is a way of living. It is a sort of lifestyle and it spreads, it seeps in to everything around us. It is pervasive. And we understand that, don't we, that we've lived in the reality of this world for the last two years where something comes into the world and it doesn't seem to matter what you do, it just won't stay in its place. It spreads all over the shop and we're finding that with Omicron. It doesn't matter what we do, everyone's getting it at the moment. And exactly the same is true of sin. It it just seeps everywhere. And you think that everything is fine and we're going to be safe and secure and it always finds a way in somehow. And there's a temptation for us to live in the fear of that as a Christian people. 
And there are some consequences uh, for our lives when we do that. We tend to shut ourselves down as Christians or as a church. We don't want to um, associate with other people outside because they'll bring corruption and sin with them. And, and, and we need to maintain a sort of a holy core um, in the middle. And if we just keep everybody out, then that will do it. And then what happens over time is that we don't associate with other Christians because they don't believe the same things that we do. And we certainly shouldn't associate with them because they will naturally sort of be the thin end of the wedge and bring all sorts of corruption into our church. So we're not going to talk to other churches of other traditions. And then we don't talk to other churches within our own tradition because they're just as bad, really. I mean, they might baptize believers instead of infants and they might um, celebrate communion the way that we do or worship the way that we do, but there's bound to be something wrong that they're doing and we just can't have that and so we shut down and shut down and shut down and eventually we live in the mistaken belief that we're really holy just the little core of who we are but of course the problem is that you then start viewing others within your church with suspicion because they're not quite the same as I am and they might believe things slightly different and it just goes on and on and on and we're in a church of one and I'm the only true one and it sounds silly, and perhaps you, you think, come on, that can't be true. I can assure you it is. I can assure you there are a great many churches all over the country worshiping right now that take that view. And it's a real danger to us when we fear the spread of sin. But Micah encourages us that when we live like the Lord is with us, we don't need to fear the spread of sin. Sin will always be a problem in this world, in this life, but we don't need to be frightened of it and afraid of it if the Lord is with us, because the Lord is the one who's capable of dealing with it, of removing it, of helping us grow beyond the sins of our youth. It certainly will grow into other sins, but he will help us grow beyond those too, so that we're always growing and maturing and uh, stripping sin away. Israel is done in verses 8 and 9, we find, uh, because it has lost its focus completely. It can't see sin anymore. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. It sounds kind of weird to us today, but the whole point is just utter desperation and sadness about the circumstances that they are facing. Sin is now so endemic to their people, they can't even see it anymore. There's no desire to strip it away and have nothing to do with it because they couldn't recognize it even if they wanted to. And there is a wailing and a weeping for that. It's an utter tragedy. The wound is incurable, we hear in verse 9. And it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gates of my people. So you get the sense that God is saying that Israel is, in a sense, done. Samaria is lost. It is so mired in sinfulness that it will be stripped away. But the remnant of Judah is still in the south and is still struggling to survive. It has come to the gates of my people, but it hasn't overwhelmed them yet. The wound isn't fatal yet, but the problem is sin is just seeping in under the door all the time, and Judah is becoming as corrupted as Israel is. So we have this tension, don't we? We recognize that sin is going to be a problem in our lives and we have to continually battle against it. We should genuinely be concerned about it and seek to keep it at bay. And yet, at the same time, we can't retreat from the world because we've been sent into the world with the gospel. We can't retreat from our brothers and sisters and other Christian denominations because they are also part of the same church that we belong to. 
Because every denomination has got something right and every denomination has got something wrong. And we can't withdraw because they're Christ's people. And we can't withdraw from one another because we're all part of the one body. And it's a nonsense for us to think that we can all just go along. And and this is imagery in the New Testament, isn't it? You can't just have an eye on its own. That's useless. You need to have the nose and the mouth and the hands and the feet and the arms and the legs. The whole body needs to go together if it's going to be in any way effective. And so we need to be in the world, but not of it. We need to be in the place where sin is, but not to indulge in it. And that's our challenge, isn't it? We can see in the history of Israel all the way from the beginning, the effects of sin is corrupting and corrosive. We crave the success that others have, the stuff that others have. We crave the lifestyle that others have. And yet, we will do anything to get it, regardless of how holy that lifestyle may happen to be. But we find in Jesus one who deals with not just sin in our lives, but the way we see it. And it's the desire that Paul draws on again and again and again that people would see the sinfulness of sin. Not just recognize that there is sin in the world and that it's bad, but that we would really, really hate sin. We would recognize that it's poisoning us the whole time. And that it can never be a good thing in our lives. And it may require us to sacrifice certain things to strip it away, but it will be worth it in the end for the life that we have with God that is free from that corruption. We don't need to fear because God goes with us as the one who actually does the work of stripping sin away. But what we need to do is recognize it's there and it needs to be dealt with. And so that is our prayer that we come and not bury our head in the sand and and pretend like it's not there. We come to God and although it's painful, we confess our sins to him. And we lay them bare before God and ask that he would deal with us and that he would help us in humility and that he would help us by his grace, but that he would deal with the problem and strip it away. I was listening to an interview just the other day with a young lady who very interestingly um, had her left lower leg amputated. Now there was no in a sense, no immediate medical reason for that to be done, that there wasn't something that was going to kill her if if she didn't chop the leg off. That's usually what happens, that if you have to have a limb removed, it's because keeping it is going to result in, in death or significant health problems. But she was in excruciating pain 24 hours a day, 365 days a year because of damage that had been done to her ankle. And for all that doctors had tried to fix it, they simply couldn't ever deal with the pain. And even with the strongest medication, it simply wasn't enough to cut through all of that pain. And she'd lived with it for years. And in the end, one doctor said, the only thing we can do if you want to be free from the pain is to take the leg off. And she took the astonishing step at a young age of saying, I'm willing to do that for that sake. And she had it removed. And she said, now she lives pain-free. It's not perfect. Her whole life has been completely transformed. It's left her with all sorts of other difficulties, but it was worth it for the sake of having that gone from my life. And this is exactly the language of the New Testament. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. The two illustrations are not exactly parallel. Please don't go lopping bits of your body off. That's not going to solve any problems. And Christians have tried in the past to do that and have found after they've amputated bits of their body, it hasn't actually changed anything. But the point is the same. It's extreme, but it's worth it. 
If your phone is a problem for you because you spend all your time on Facebook, maybe you need to not have a phone with Facebook on it. Or if YouTube is a problem or the internet generally, maybe you just need to not have that thing. You're not going to die without it, probably. I'm not a doctor and I'm not issuing medical advice, but, but maybe you just need to not have that thing in your life. Because it's always leading you to waste your time, to look at things that you shouldn't, to speak to people you shouldn't, to engage in ways of thought that aren't honoring to God. It's extreme. But what is really more important? Our entertainment for a time or that we live with the presence of the Lord in our midst so that we never need to fear sin. We never need to fear the corruption it brings. We find Micah goes on to say that as we uh, begin to live without fear from all of these things that sin brings, when we live like the Lord is with us, we need not fear slavery to sin. And that's, I think, probably my biggest concern in my life, that we not be kept as a slave to anything. That all we are is focused on God. And 10 through 16, we find this list of cities. All of these cities can be seen from Meresheth, where Micah is from. It's not the order that the cities were destroyed in, because they were all ultimately destroyed. It's not anything like that. It's simply, if you stand where Micah lives and look around, you know uh, that Lachish is over that way, that Bethlehem is over that way, that, um, that Zanan is over that way. And he just lists them all, one after the other, and their names and what they're known for are all ultimately Ultimately, uh, quite significant. We, we don't have time to go through all of them and draw out the significance of that. But he goes through and says to each one of them something different. And he bookends them with Gath uh, and Adullam, which are not cities of Israel and are, are not ultimately destroyed. But they are cities that are significant in the life of David. And his purpose in that is to outline uh, not just the the scope of Israel, but, but to bring in their history. That there was a time when faithfulness was here. And all of these cities prospered and did what was right. And all of that is gone. And so you have Gath and you have Adullam, not cities of Israel. They will survive, but all of the faithful cities of Israel will be wiped out, will be destroyed. So roll yourselves in the dust people of Bethlehem. You could have had life, but you've returned to the dust of the earth. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, and nakedness and shame. You could have been clothed in righteousness, is his point. You could have had the dignity of life with God, but you've abandoned all of that and chased after every other God on the block. And so now you have nothing left. And the list goes on and on and on. You could have had what was good, but you gave it up for nothing for the pursuit of worldly wealth and power. And so now you will be laid bare. You could have grounded yourself upon God, but you chose another way, the way of self-reliance. And when you needed God, when trouble came, he wasn't there. Now, as Christians, we recognize God promises he will never leave or forsake us. And that's totally true. God will never leave or forsake you. But that doesn't mean that there won't be times in your life where you wonder if he really is there. That you don't know what to do or where to go. You know what you ought to do, but you simply just don't want to do it. And that parallels the situation of Judah and Israel here. That moment where you feel dislocated from the faith that you had, and you simply don't know where to go or don't want to go where you know you ought to. But we are free from that kind of slavery to sin, where we feel we keep just wanting to do this thing that's killing us, poisoning us the whole time. We are free from it so long as we live with God every day. Why? Because he exposes it for what it is. He exposes it for the poison, the thing that is killing you 
every single day. And with that goes a gradual growing hatred for that thing, an ever-growing desire to have it done away with, and the power to lay it aside that comes only from Christ. Otherwise, we start casting around, looking for help anywhere and everywhere, and we've touched on that last week, haven't we? That desire to be medicated, to to feel okay, and a scrabble to, to find that solution anywhere. But what happens when the solution only makes you feel worse? Like drinking salt water, it only dries you out even more. In the end, when we live with God every day, we find the solution comes, and we need not fear slavery to this way of life. All we have is liberation and freedom. As we come to Micah chapter 1, we are challenged by this example of Israel. As Israel is laid waste because of the bankruptcy of their faith, and we wonder about whether our faith is as strong as we first thought it was. We, we can't simply wish ourselves into this kind of life, but what we need to do is live with God every single day. One piece at a time, growing, 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 however small, however incremental. But knowing that when the day comes and my faith is put to the test, it will be there. He will be there. And I need not fear. So let's encourage one another to continually walk, to continually grow, to focus always on Him regardless of the cost. So that when the day comes, the proven, tested nature of our faith will bear itself out. And we will stay faithful to the very end. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. And we thank you, Lord, for this example, this terrible example in your word. Lord, it grieves us to hear of your people abandoning you and chasing after other gods. And yet, Lord, we recognize if we look closely at our own lives, that is certainly the case for each one of us. Lord, there have been times we've chased after other things. We've desired the quick and easy fix to this life and have not considered you. And so, Lord God, we confess that before you this morning. We ask that you would bless us, Lord, with repentance, that you would open our eyes and help us to see. And we pray, Lord, that you'd give us courage because it can be so hard for us to confront and confess our sins, so much easier to keep it hidden and secret. But, Lord, when we do confess them, we know that you are a God who is able, who is mighty to save and to have them dealt with. And so, Lord God, we cast ourselves upon you and we pray that you would lead us on in faithfulness and in love. For, Lord, there is nothing more important to us in this life than knowing that you are with us, that you are the rock of our salvation, our Redeemer, and the one in whom we can always trust. So, our loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would lead us through this life, free from the fear of sin and all that it brings, because we are not given a spirit of fear, but one of power by your Spirit. And so, Lord God, we commit ourselves to you, and we pray that you would lead us out into this coming week to live free from fear this week, for you love us and go with us always. And Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' precious and mighty name. Amen.